Hello, and welcome to Fireside with the VC. My name is Andrew Romans, and I'm excited to have Brian Awe, who is the founder and general partner of Refashioned on the podcast. Brian and I met first, I think, when we co-invested when he was working with Jeff Citrin at KEC Ventures. But Brian, good Probably. to see you. Yeah, yeah, good to see you, Andrew. Thanks so, for having me. You know, my pleasure. Thanks for coming. So uh, kind of three different topics I want to talk about. One is your interesting life story of how you came from Ghana to Nigeria to the United States venture capital yeah. scene, and yeah. then um, how you got into venture working with Jeff at KEC. And yeah. then um, what got us talking again was some research you did on yeah. how, you know, everyone says every year, oh, this is the end of venture capital as we know it. <laughs> This is the end of venture capital as we know it, you know, hoard sugar um, and flour. And you did a lot of research on that, which was kind of interesting and interviewed a lot of people that we know in common. So I'd like to get to some of the nuggets of, of your research. And then I'd like to talk a bit about Refashioned, your, yeah, new, yeah, yeah. your, new, your new venture capital fund as an emerging manager. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah that so, sounds like a plan. Yeah. Okay. So let's, let's get into it. So uh, born in Guyana, went to Nigeria, came to the United States. How did this all happen? Yeah. So uh, born in Ghana, uh, I'm, I'm Ghanaian by birth. Uh, during, the, uh, during the oil boom, my parents, my dad got a job in Nigeria. And so he moved the family, he moved the family to Nigeria. And so I grew up in Nigeria. Uh, I won't get into all the details, did all my high schooling back in Ghana. Uh, just so I could learn the culture and, 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 and get to know my relatives. And then in 97, I got lucky and won a grant that paid for my, my education at Connecticut College in New London. Um, so I came over to the States, studied math and physics as a double major um, and have been here, have been here since. Uh, did a few different jobs around data analysis between uh, Connecticut College and when I finished my MBA at NYU. So I did a short stint at Watson Wyatt in actuarial, in, in, in benefits actuarial work, did a short stint at UBS, did a short stint at Lehman, all in HR and number crunching and whatnot. In fact, I used to describe my, I used to describe myself as my team's number cruncher. And then once I finished my MBA, that's when uh, I got lucky and Jeff Citron hired me at his family office. Interestingly, I was the second employee at the family office. So. And for those that don't know, we were just you know, talking about Jeff Pulver, who I met in 1996, I think for the first yeah. time, and yeah. he had minutes exchange, and I had the global tele exchange. So we were, we were taking TDM, old school PSTN minutes, connecting mm -hmm. to our device, bringing mm -hmm. it over a signaling gateway that mm -hmm. put it into asynchronous transfer mode, which was packet switches like voice over IP, but it was really mm -hmm. voice over ATM. And then on the other end of the world, we could drop it out on anything from VoIP mm -hmm. to TDM to SIP. So I knew Jeff Pulver and I knew Jeff Citrin when he was at Vonage. But, mm -hmm. but so he really made his money on the Vonage IPO. Is that right? So I think he made some money at Daytech Online, made okay. some money at, at, um, at Island ECN. 
and also made some money with, with Varnish. So he's one of these serial entrepreneurs who seems to, <laughs> everything he touches seems to turn to gold. And then he turned, <laughs> and then he turned some of that money loose on founders with KEC Ventures. With, with KEC Ventures, yes. And I tell people it was a fantastic experience, you know, much like Connecticut College changed my life. I think my experience at KEC was life-changing as well because not only was I the second employee at the family office, but then, so, so I joined the family office in 2008. In 2011, at that point, uh, my former partner, Jeff Parkinson, had joined us, and, and, and he and I had become what we call the investing team. But then Jeff Citron and his family decided to build a venture fund. And so Jeff Parkinson, uh, Jeff Parkinson and I worked on you know building a venture fund from scratch an early stage venture fund from scratch and the hypothesis at the time was remember this is 2011 the question at the time was is there room in the new york market for another institutional seed or early stage fund and oh yes what, hell yes i'll answer yeah, that question yeah, at, yeah. At, 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 at that time there there was and so Fund one was a $35 million vehicle. Fund two was a $63 million vehicle. If you count a couple of SPVs that we did roughly uh, somewhat north of $100 million. And that's that's where- Some of the I, SPVs uh, were $300 million no, 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 so, no. No, no, no. So, so, so if you include if you include the SPVs together with the, with the, the okay. main funds, yeah, yeah, it comes to north of to north of a hundred million. Okay, fantastic. And what yeah. stage what stage geography sectors were you investing? I mean, I know this, but for the benefit of people listening, we so mostly United States based companies, uh, startups, and and institutional seed rounds, a couple of Series A's, but 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 mostly the institutional seed. Uh, uh, round. We did a couple of investments in Israel uh, and one investment from Singapore, company based in Singapore. Mm -hmm. And what was the what, what was the dynamic with the team? So Jeff obviously is the serial entrepreneur, you know, yeah. behind the fund, and then yeah. you, you're, you're essentially a junior co-founder, you know, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah. putting team around him. But how many team members were, were you guys from this kind of 2011 to? Was it 2018 so that you left? Yeah, yeah, 2018 is when I left. So 2011, think of Jeff Parkinson and I as being the full-time, full-time building the fund. Jeff comes in when we need him. Uh, Jeff Citron comes in when we need him. By 2018, when I left, um, you know, the team was like nine, was not like nine full-time people plus, plus Jeff Citron. Okay, okay. And that's all pre-COVID. So everyone was in New York. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. Eventually, so, so initially up till I'd say up till July 2015, our office was in Manasquan, New Jersey. And then from July 2015 till 2018, when I left, our office was in Manhattan. Okay. And and so before we get into re refashioned Fashion, ventures, yeah, yeah, yeah. um, Tell me about this research. And, you know, I jokingly say every every couple of weeks, probably since I was born, some journalist <laughs> has a headline that says death of venture capitalists oh, venture capital. over. Everyone will just, you know, find their spouse online and everything will be in the metaverse. <laughs> and who needs these worthless roadkill 
<laughs> and their dumb little vests with their logos. Yeah. So what, what, what prompted you to do this research and how did you go about it? Yeah, so it's, it's, it's precisely what you said, that uh, uh, after seeing a number of different headlines, and I suspect that some of them were derivatives of one another, um, that said family offices are going to disrupt uh, VCs. I, and I was joking with you before that people who know me will say, yeah, that sounds like Brian. But I just got so annoyed one day that I said, this is a topic I know a lot about. I'm sure there's some additional information I'll need to research, but I'm going to sit down and I'm going to get to, to the bottom of this um, because I don't think family offices are going to disrupt VCs. In fact, I think we are more and more where, where the, the world is becoming such that if you're going to invest in technology and early stage innovation, the best thing that family offices can do is partner with emerging, with emerging uh, managers. And so that's what the research was about. So some of it is my lived experience, right? From, from all the time I spent at KEC Ventures. Um, uh, so, uh, uh, some of it is knowledge that I've gained by making some LP investments also through the family office. Um, and, then, and then some of it is, you know, stuff that I've had to learn the hard way like everyone else through reading and whatnot. Um, and, and I think one, one aspect that makes this somewhat unique is that I then reached out to emerging managers in my network and I said, here's the question I'm trying to answer. I'd love to feature you in it. So towards the end of the, of the, of the report or guide, there's something like um, probably 10, maybe more managers who chime in on how they think uh, family offices and emerging ma managers might work together. Yeah, yeah, and I said I, I think I know most. I think I know most of the ten uh, yeah. that you had in your list, and that kind of grabbed my attention. And yeah. what did you learn that was not obvious to you beforehand? I mean, you'd, you'd seen the experience of making an LP investment, and then maybe cherry picking yeah. some of the deal flow from the yeah. fund that the family invests in, or yeah. do you? Is it more invest in the VC fund and then generate deal flow and warm introductions from the the GP managers for the family to invest directly or they're only investing in SPVs? I think that the one, the one thing that didn't dawn on me until I actually sat down to, to do this is this idea that if in 2011, if family offices thought they could compete with venture capitalists to make investments at the early stage. And I want to emphasize that I'm focused on the early stage, right? So this is pre-seed, seed, series A, maybe series B, mm -hmm. but let's just stop at series A, right? Yeah. This is yeah, where yeah. things are, this is where things are most uncertain. The technology is most risky. Uh, no one really knows for sure what's going to happen, right? That's that's really where I'm focused. And if you're looking for 100x plus returns, that's where you need to, to be investing, right? That's that's where I'm focused. So the thing that didn't dawn on me until I sat down to like synthesize what I know and figure out the answers to what I don't know is that it's probably more difficult more difficult now than it ever has been for a family office to succeed if it's going head to head with uh, with 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 VCs.
in making yeah. those types of investments. And the reason, the reason is that there's there's a book I I talk I talk about in the research, and we interviewed him at one of our events for the Worldwide Supply Chain uh, Federation. But the reason is that we're entering this age where the exponential technologies that you and I as early stage technology investors take for granted, right? So it's the machine learning, the artificial intelligence, the 3D printing, the uh, distributed networks, um, the edge computing, the cloud computing, the fall computing, all those buzzwords that get you and I excited, right? Those are now moving from the realm of being applied only at companies like Google and Facebook and Amazon and Microsoft, and they're now being implemented in traditional legacy industries. Mm-hmm. And so the, yeah. the speed, the speed of the speed of change, the speed of change in industries that one might have thought of as being stayed and, and progressing uh, uh, glacially, the speed of change is picking up. And, and, and that just makes it much more difficult for a family office to to keep up, to keep up with with, with all the or, things. Or to ignore it, you know, that th- 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 the, ch- the decision to I'm not going to be involved in venture capital. Um, either directly investing or as an LP is is a strategic mistake. I'll give an example like that that years ago you would expect, you know, the CEO of Microsoft and the CEO of Intel to say, we have to pay attention to startups because we're living off of Moore's law. And if Moore's law stops happening, people will stop buying a new PC, which which sells our CPU. And yep. uh, we need the new CPU to make the new Microsoft operating system heavier. System. So, yep. so it just spirals up together. So these guys are like, I can't sleep for more than an hour without staying on top of everything. Okay. Whereas yeah. the CEO of John Deere says, we make tractors. Yeah. People will always need tractors. And I could never be the Microsoft or the Intel guy because I like to go to bed at night. I can leave the office at 4.59 p.m. Mm-hmm. knowing that everything will be in place the same place. tomorrow as it was 20 years ago. Well, I yeah. think all of a sudden, every single CEO, whatever their industry is, has woken up, not yeah. least of which supply chain, and said, my God, I should be as panicking as those other guys God, on yes. seismic shifts in my industry. Mm-hmm. And what is my strategy to do that? Because these guys were set up for it going yes. back the last 30 yes. years. Yeah, we yeah. were not, we were just sitting alone, isolated and happy to be on an island of annuity revenue. Right. When in fact, you know, every John Deere tractor is going to be an autonomous driving vehicle. Yes. And, yes. you know, automation and metrics and connecting that's, the data sets. That's, that's exactly, you're, you're, you're right on point. And especially you know, going back again to family offices, right? Because John, John Deere is a publicly tra- traded company. You're absolutely right. They should be thinking about this. They should be investing in startups and in funds and whatnot. But specifically, you know, back to the research, if you're a family office that is embedded in the company, in the traditional company from which the family made its business, then I really think in that case, especially... Right, the family office is not is not being a good steward to the business, the company it's embedded in, if it's not examining 
startups and how it can best invest in, in, in startups for all the reasons that you, you, you laid out about why John Deere, for example, should be more engaged in thinking about innovation and technology and how that's affecting its industry than one would have expected in the past. Hmm. And what do you think about family offices saying, okay, I might be based in Singapore or be based in North Dakota. I can easily just show up with cash and invest in the best startups in the New York City startup ecosystem. <laughs> like whatever it's, relationship it's... Ryan and Andrew have uh, means nothing. I'll just come in there on my own with no relationship. It's, it's... It's a lot more complicated than that, right? Because there is so much, there is so much capital looking for a place to be deployed that just having cash is no longer enough, right? Uh, founders are expecting you to understand what they do, to be able to work with them as a thought partner. They are hoping that you have some relationships that will be useful to them. Um, and so if you're a family office with uh, a background in a certain industry, perhaps you have that, perhaps you, you don't. Um, but I think what really makes it difficult is that VCs, early stage VCs, understand that they're entering into a, an endeavor that is highly uncertain and highly risky. And we're comfortable with that. Right, we're comfortable with being unable to sleep well at night. Right? As as Ben Horowitz, as Ben Horowitz puts it in his book, he sleeps like a baby. Right, we wake up every two hours in cold sweat, screaming, screaming at the top of our lungs. What did I get myself into? You know, the average family office executive did not sign up. Did not sign up. Yeah, I mean, I think. I think the truth is, if you have a sensible, well thought out portfolio construction portfolio. that you're sticking yeah. to, then yeah. you can neutralize yeah. the individual startup risk. And when the founder is going off a cliff or smashing mm -hmm. into a wall, the VC can be very calm and supportive calm, and, yes. and helpful. Yes. Yes. And yes. say, let's, yes. let's not get emotional yes. for a second. Exactly. Exactly. I've seen this. I've seen this before. Let's not get let's not get ahead of ourselves. Calm down. Here is what we can do, and, and so on and so forth. Whereas you you know, comparatively speaking, someone from a family office who hasn't had this experience over and over again might yeah. not be as as calm and, and, and restrained about things. So I mean, when you're going for the hundred X return, which we are also, um, there's gonna be turbulence because yes. you know the pattern of a little bit of revenue wasn't over five years and maybe yep. even more than a few months. And so yep. there's gonna be turbulence and pivots and changes. Um, yep. So that's just to be expected yes. um, rather than everything going to the plan. But I think family offices are, are incredibly important and can be much more valuable than VCs in many ways when, you know, we have, for example, looking at your supply chain mm -hmm. t-shirt you're wearing, um, we have LPs from Singapore and Japan that own shipping companies. So mm -hmm. they, and they probably are third generation shipping company, you know, uh, patriarchs and matriarchs yes. that- yes. For yes. us to be able to partner with them on a supply chain company and say, yes, 
can you share some domain expertise of yours expertise, on this? Yes. So yes. what did your research or your experience tell you? So, so, so that is the ideal, that's the ideal scenario, right? That you have a fund that's looking, that's focused on some area and, and why not let's, let's use a, a supply chain as a great example. And that family offices invest in the fund, but those family offices have relevant experience and shipping and shipping is a great one. Shipping is an incredibly important industry. It's also incredibly complex and it's incredibly insular. And so if you're a fund that's going to be investing in, in, in startups, creating new innovations and technology for the shipping industry, that's an incredibly valuable relationship to have. Now, what the shipping executives or shipping families that have invested in the fund as LPs don't need to do is they probably don't want to, to sit there looking at a hundred different uh, startups trying to figure out which is real which is worth the time and which is not so that's where the fund the the investors at the fund can we know the list down to five or so and go to their LP and say look we're, we're thinking about this thesis one is this really a problem that exists in the industry will anyone pay for it of these five startups, which one looks most promising, right? They, they make their independent decision about who to make an investment in. And then at that point, once the product is mature enough, perhaps the shipping company that their LP owns becomes a customer or becomes a distribution channel for Absolutely. the startup, right? So I think in that way, you get the best of both worlds, right? The LPs still get exposure to some of the new innovations and technologies that affect their industry. And they get to add value to the startups because of their, their, their connections and relationship and, 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 and their role in the industry that the fund is investing in. And they benefit from the fact that their industry, which may have been perceived to be sleepy for many years is under dynamic change seismic yes. change so exactly it's experience you, and size yes you want to be the one benefiting from ai and ml that didn't exist a few years not yes. the victim yes not the not victim, the victim. exactly exactly that enables them to be proactive rather than reactive to the changes that that the industry is experiencing so, so interesting stuff. And Brian, if you want, I can put a link to in the show notes for people to download your paper, yeah, which yeah, I found very interesting. And it was fun to see people I know chiming in with their opinions yeah, and experiences. Yeah. But so let's talk about being a fundpreneur, starting a fund from <laughs> scratch. Yeah. You know, uh, so when, when, you know, and, and what you learned was working, what you learned was not working. Uh, yeah. When was it? 2018 you were working from 2011 to 2018 with jeff citron at yes at kc yes, ventures yeah and then 2018 as good a year as any to branch out and do your to own branch, yeah 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 so but but by the time i left kc ventures and like i said it was a tremendous uh, learning experience the fact that the times i wake up and i'm like man I, I miss chris and jp and john and and the other folks on the team because we had a really great uh, dynamic um but 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 by the time i left kc in 2018 I had become very, very convinced that supply chain, broadly speaking, as a topic, was going to become front and center. And 
I met my now partner, Lisa, in 2016. And when I met her, we had a really fascinating conversation the first time because in all the years I had been thinking about supply chain. And, I, and I'd say I started to think about supply chains as an investment, as an area to specialize in as an early stage VC in about 2015 or so. It turns out she had been thinking about it from about 2014. And so when I met her, it was the first time I met someone who didn't think my, my fascination with supply chain technology was a complete waste of time and a complete joke. And so I was like, wow, she's thinking about things the, in a way that is very similar to how I'm thinking about it. The difference was that, and she, and she was teaching herself as, as well, which was similar to what I was doing, was exactly the same as what I was doing. I was teaching myself too. And uh, the difference is that she was looking at supply chains and innovation and technology from the perspective of the fashion and apparel industry. And I didn't realize it during that first conversation but it turns out that that's a great way to learn about supply chains because fashion touches almost every other industry vertical that you can think of, right? There are energy issues, manufacturing issues, logistics and transportation issues, agriculture issues, advanced materials issues, chemicals, uh, advanced manufacturing, healthcare issues, regulatory issues, you name it, you name it. The fashion ESG, industry is ESG, 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 right? So if, if supply chain is your thing, that's a, great, that's a great foundation on which to start. I was looking at things from the perspectives of trucking and shipping. So more the logistics side of things. And, you know, the one thing we kept saying to one another is this is going to become a thing. Uh, we, we got so convinced of this idea that in 2017, we launched the meetup in New York, the New York supply chain meetup. And the idea for the meetup was let's bring, and this was the, the insight for the meetup came from all the conversations that we were having. So what we realized was when you talked to the technologists, right, PhD in engineering or mathematics or physics or something, is working on this new innovation for supply chains. What we quickly realized is they understood the technology really well. They didn't understand the industry as well as they needed to. And so getting the first customer was difficult. Understanding exactly what their innovation needed to accomplish was difficult, all those sorts of things. And then when we talked to industry executives, they understood the problems in supply chains in the industry really, really well, right? And they understood where things needed to change. They, they understood where things could stay the same and everyone would be fine. What they didn't understand was how far along machine learning has come. This blockchain thing, is it for real? <laughs> or is it just, or is it just chain, smoke it and mirrors, <laughs> right? Is, um, uh, is cloud computing, what's the deal with cloud computing? You know, all these, all these emerging technologies that were are slowly making their way into legacy industries, right? The industry execs don't have the time to go really deep on them. And so the goal of the meetup was, Let's bring the builders of these new innovations, these new technological innovations together with the buyers of these new technological 
innovations and let's enable them to have conversations that are low risk but that have the potential to build trust relatively quickly and what i mean by that is when you know daniel from optimal dynamics which is an ai optimization company that's now focused on tr on trucking when he does his presentation at uh, our meetup and there are industry people in the audience who talk to him afterwards that conversation at the meetup is a low risk conversation mm -hmm. right there's nothing there's nothing at stake but what it has the what it has the potential to do is for them to realize you know he really does seem to know what he's talking about here's my business card give me a call let's meet in my office All right so that low risk interaction creates enough trust for them to now go on have more conversations and, po and possibly do business with with one another we, we've seen a lot of great success um, uh, from startups that have presented at the meetup you know some of them say before the meetup we could barely get anyone to talk to us we presented at your meetup and lo and behold you know three months later six months later the difference is like night and day you know now the press loves us customers love us we're flying all over the world and that's exactly what the meetup is designed is designed to accomplish so your your meetup it's almost a page out of the classic chinese venture capital playbook or even we did the same thing of mm -hmm. of using events to um establish a community mm -hmm. specifically around uh a subject matter area of expertise. Yes, yes, and so yes. like in China, often like Beijing tells the mayor of the city, I want you to be the automotive capital. I want you to be the biotech capital. Mm. I want you to be the blockchain capital, whatever. And now they're like, all right, so I have, I can close my fund if I can demonstrate I'm a super node in a network of people around that topic that the upstairs has told me to focus on. To focus so they, on. they then grab a bunch of speakers that are experts in that area, the top CEOs, and put an event together, getting everyone in the room and saying, hey, if nothing else, I know all these people. And hopefully I've been paying attention and I've learned it. So how how often is the meetup? I, I wish... I I wish I had spoken to you in 2017 because yeah. then, then I would have had the cheat sheet. I would have had the cheat sheet for how we do this. Um, so before COVID, we were meeting uh, once a month. Uh, that was the goal. COVID has complicated that a little bit. Some months we haven't. And met. where were you Although doing it? Some law firm or where were you holding your... So, so SAP hosted us for a while. Workbench, okay. a venture fund in New York, hosted us for I think the first six months. Uh, Microsoft was very, very generous and hosted us for a while. Now that things are coming back after the pandemic, it's not clear who's back in the office yet and who can serve as a host. But space is always, as you know, space yeah. is always is always the biggest headache when you're trying to put together an event. So yeah, yeah, we've relied heavily on law firms and then the law firms are afraid of putting their name out there as seen yeah. to be doing the super spreader event. Yeah. You know, yeah. my answer is stay home if you don't want to come. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Stay home yeah. if you don't want to yeah. come yeah. or yeah. watch it online. Yeah. We yeah. I want to do yeah. these things in person. Yeah, and yep, so yep. with with bringing together these different stakeholders of the supply chain ecosystem, 
you know, physically together or virtually together. Did you manage to get a corporate to say, um, I've gotten to know Brian and I want to be an anchor in the fund or has it been so that's an what, ongoing discussion? It, it, so, so that's what we're working on now. There, there, there was a lot of skepticism when Lisa and I initially pitched the fund. Uh, so throughout 20 and 19, you know, there was a lot of skepticism. Is the supply chain really a big enough area to, to support a fund what would a supply chain fund look like you're the first fund we have ever heard of that's talking about the about this yeah thing. but at the same time there's all these boats off of you know, <laughs> Long Beach, well that California. was well that was 2019 that was 2019 that was 2019 then the pandemic happened in 2020 and the tone shifted right then the tone was well we recognize that supply chain is a thing but you know you're you're a new team you don't have a portfolio yet and so ultimately what we decided to do in late 2020 was to launch a rolling fund on angel list um, okay um, which is a yes. 506c fund right so it's a 506 it's a 506c fund so for so those who don't that, know that means brian can openly talk about his fund i can without, i can open violating yes. securities laws. yes Yes, yes, I can openly talk about the fund. LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, <laughs> you name it, I'm talking about the fund. Um, so we launched on AngelList in July of 2021. Uh, we've okay. made 13 investments so far. We are now... And, and you're doing it all on AngelList, so you're using the AngelList structure yes, to make those yes, investments using, and everything? Yes, 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 we're, we're using the AngelList structure. And what's uh, the and minimum... So far, What's the minimum commitment you can take into that? The minimum commitment is twenty five. So twenty five thousand dollars. And is that up to be? Is it twenty five thousand per quarter, or how does that work? No, it's twenty five thousand dollars per year for for us. That's a great question. I I I, I didn't explain it. So so the way we set it up, and I was I was thinking about. I had this ongoing nightmare till I came up with this idea. I said, oh my God, Brian, you're going to launch this, this rolling fund with Lisa and then CFA Institute is going to hear about it. And they're going to say, what the hell is a CFA charter holder doing launching a rolling fund? Brian, come down to HQ and explain yourself. And so I said, how do, I, how do we set this up so that it stands the scrutiny of the CFA Institute? Well, the most important thing you learn in the curriculum is to manage risk on behalf of your investors, right, on behalf of your LPs. And so I said, what that means is we need to set it up so that LPs commit for a minimum of four quarters, right? We, it's required. You have to commit for four quarters. We recommend you commit for eight, but four quarters is the absolute minimum. So a $25,000 minimum commitment spread over four quarters. That means each quarter is 6,250. Our expectation is that each quarter we will make about three investments, maybe more, maybe fewer. But at the end of a year, we think your portfolio should be roughly 15 investments or so, maybe 12. But my argument, the way I justified it to myself was, you, you know what, a portfolio of 12 startups seems diversified enough, 
right? And if most LPs follow our recommendation and commit for eight quarters, now they're four, now they're nicely now they have now they have now they're nicely diversified, and risk and uncertainty is is manageable for any for any one of them. And so this is the challenge, though, that if somebody comes in with um, twenty five k over four quarters. If they invest in the fourth quarter of 2021, does that mean they become an LP in what you invested in in Q1 to the end of Q3, or only the stuff it that starts, gets? It starts from when it starts from when they subscribe to when their subscription ends. Okay. So think of it. So so think of it as what happens if an LP came into fund two, but wasn't in your fund one. Right, but but it's but it's more precise. So if they, they get into the next investment that you make, yes, they will yes. be in, and yes. and it's yes. not contingent upon. They can close in at any time. Like they could do it while we're on the phone, while we're yes. while we're exactly. talking. Someone might have come yep. in, and if yep. you make an investment tonight, they're in that one. That that, that yeah, KYCs yes. and all yes. that. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. yeah. And, and are you under any pressure to deploy capital within? The calendar year like what happens if you if someone invests on january 1st and you know this and you only make three investments and then you make more investments you know later with the capital that was that was brought in like do you have any, any use it or lose it smoke them if you got them situation no any capital that isn't deployed in a given quarter rolls into the next okay so it's as simple as that quarter. Yes, it's, it's as simple as that. I actually think, and, and I'll send you this, I'll send you this blog post if you're interested since, since rolling funds are such a new thing. But I, I actually think for what it was designed to do, I think the rolling fund structure is an elegant, is an elegant uh, solution, right? So the rolling fund structure, as Angel Lists uh, uh, announced it, was for new, ma uh, new managers, who are, set, who are setting up a fund for the first time. Fundraising is an issue. It was also designed for new LPs who can't get into a typical fund because the minimums are so high, right? So if you're an LP for whom the, the $250,000 minimum to get into a typical fund is too high, you can invest in a rolling fund with a minimum like ours of $25,000 or, um, or $100,000 or $150,000, right? Whereas right. in a, a traditional fund, there will be like in our traditional fund, the minimum is going to be, to be much, to be much, much higher. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I was saying to you, we have LPs from Nigeria and Ghana spread around the world, often working in the oil and gas industry or medical seem like the two, but it's gotten more diverse than that. They, they often um, say, um, can I pay you this much on this month and this much on that month? Because they're planning out their own cash flows. Uh, and, and, and I was originally like, oh boy, yeah. this is confusing, but yeah. um, it made it work. So they got in the network. It's a little bit like a proxy for rolling fund. Yes. Um, yes. We, have a yes. we have a 506C on AngelList as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, yeah. and for us, it's been useful to have, if you're below this minimum, mm -hmm. you can still come in mm -hmm. and it goes into the AngelList. And yeah. I, I like the 506C. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, the, I think an advantage too is if uh, 
you know, you were working with Jeff Citrin at KEC Ventures, where we had co-invested with you guys before, but you probably were not personally doing all the fund admin, dealing with the K-1s. Right, exactly. Dealing with exactly. the accountants. Exactly. You know, exactly. like, you know, you've got a deadline to get to a Kinko's from your vacation and print something yep. and, you know, have certified mail. There's a lot of, there's a lot of annoyance to running it all. We, we we had a great conversation with the CTO of Angel List some time ago, and he explained to us that the way to think about what Angel List is doing is that Angel List is a technology company creating innovations to improve how fund management works, right? Creating software innovations to improve how you set up and run and manage a fund as opposed to some of their competitors who are really fund administration and fund operations companies who are building technology to, to manage their, their business. And I think, that's a, I think that's an important distinction to keep in mind, right? So mm -hmm. they're creating all this technology with, the, with the, the problem set that the technology is being created for being, how do you set up and manage a fund in a, in a highly efficient, uh, highly tech savvy way? So for example, they recently announced that this year, one of the things they're going to do is spend a lot of time on their UI, the user interface. Because while it seems simple enough there are still a lot of improvements. There are still a lot of improvements that they could make, especially since many of the LPs that they're trying to attract are people for whom this is the very first time they're investing in a venture fund, right? This is the first time they're investing in a venture fund. This is their very first LP commitment. And so the easier it is for them to follow what's happening and for them to digest information and for them to go through the steps of signing up, the, the, the much better it is for, for, for everyone. Yeah. And so um, for final questions, what 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 lessons did you learn that you could share with other emerging managers that want to set up a first time fund? You know, what what should they be thinking about or be careful about? Uh, I, th I think the lesson the lesson I can. The overriding lesson is. It's probably going to be a lot more difficult than one expects. Yeah. I think that that's that's something that's something I'm I'm learning is a lot more difficult than than one expects. Uh, fundraising is is really really hard, um, yeah. and especially for Lisa and I, um, I think our network is not as populated with accredited investors as some other people uh, might have. And even so, so fundraising is difficult for everyone, right? But especially for outsiders like us, it's even that much more, more, more difficult, which the, the, the fact that we've crossed the million dollar mark in commitments in the rolling fund is, is kind of wild. It's incredible. That's it's great. incredible to me. And I, and I think, you know, one lesson I learned from, uh, a, an institutional investor who was giving advice to a bunch of emerging managers was just get going as quickly as you possibly can. Because it takes get, time. Like, it, it takes time. And so the, 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 the sooner you can get going, the more likely it is that you build enough momentum 
to get you to that important first milestone, which, you know, I think for everyone is raising that first institutional, that first institutional fund. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, you know, your partner's a woman, you're, you're an African-American, we're living in a time of trying to rebalance an extremely imbalanced set of white men, yeah. you know, yeah. in the, in the industry. At the same time, I can imagine if you were talking to institutional investors, I've, I've heard institutional investors say, Andrew, you haven't gone through transformation, generational transformation yet. <laughs> and I thought, you know, I flew to Boston for you to tell me, tell me. I have to retire before you're going to invest in my fund. I mean, I'm not sure I believe in this afterlife, you know, yeah, it's yeah, taken a little yeah. too long, you know, too so, long. Yeah. so going straight to these accredited investors gets you making 10 and 12 investments a year, gets you going, yeah. gets yeah. those exits, prove your worth to those startups. Yeah. There's yeah. a lot of good things that, that, that can happen. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. great. Well, well, so when is the next supply chain meetup going to be? Uh, when can we well, all hit that? And, and I should know to send you all my startups that are in that sector because we, you know, we, you know, we see a lot. Yes. So, so, so anything that has to do with with supply chain, uh, definitely send them our way. Um, I'm careful to note that a lot of the other supply chain funds out there, when you dig into into the way they're executing the thesis are really more focused on logistics. And we think we think of supply chain as being, yes, logistics is the linchpin of supply chain, but supply chain is a lot broader than that. So I, I really love the way that Alan Patrickoff and I think his partner is Abby. Abby, Abby, um, yeah, 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 yeah. I, I love the way that uh, that that Alan and Abby uh, talked about uh, uh, prime time, which is that you know they think of it as a horizontal rather than as a vertical, and that's how we're thinking about it too. And in in much the same way as in uh, what they're discovering is that because they're looking at it as a horizontal, there's a lot of learning that can happen between their founders and the oh, startups yeah. that they're investing in. We're, we're, we're starting to see the same thing too, that there's a lot of, of mutual benefit that can occur in the portfolio. Well, listen, Brian, I'm a big believer in the power of the network and to be humble that you yourself are not the little genius dictator that's gonna make this all work. Um, <laughs> you know, as so, you know, five, you know, general partners that look the same with the same network trying to do it all themselves. Oh, yeah, I think yeah. it's it's making these connections to all these people in the universe that can then collectively, yeah. you know, perform certain functions from sourcing the deal to yeah. quickly running up the flagpole and saying, how do you do this now? What do you yeah. think about this? And yeah. And then going back to the deal and saying, hey, I just got this feedback from a very important person for you. Person. Yeah. And that all of a sudden they're like, well, I have room for Brian in my round. Yes. And, so, and yep. then the post investment delivery and there's just, it's, it's a never ending thing. And the network it, is it, everything. That That's a very important point. We got into uh, Leaf Logistics, their series B for that reason. Uh, there's a company we haven't invested in yet, so I can't name them, but they're raising a really big series B and we're getting in for that same reason. Sure, because you, you bring value. 
and none of these companies needs our check, right? Like at Series B, they're raising huge, huge amounts of money. They don't need the small check from refashioned, but we're getting it for that reason. And there's always some fund that is oversized for their deal flow. So they're yeah. trying to take as much and they're trying yeah. to box out your hundred grand check or yeah. whatever it is you're doing. Yeah. And then yeah. the founder needs to be smart and say, yeah, but they're adding value. It's not killing your ownership target yeah. to let them in. Exactly. Yeah. And then you've got yeah. your dream, you know, you get your draft pick of whatever you wanted to be in. One. Yes. As opposed exactly. to the other one saying, I could have been in it, but I have my ownership percentage target that exactly. I failed to get. Yep. Therefore, yeah. I failed to get in at all. Because yeah. My little dictator team wants to be on the board and super hands-on. Yeah, exactly. Driving it all. Exactly. Well, last yeah. question for you, Brian. Switching from to a founder seeking funding from you or anybody, what's one bit of advice you could give to a founder on how to raise early stage venture funding? One piece of advice for founders raising well I'll, I'll say what works what works for us what works for us is come directly to us tell us what you're doing tell us why you're doing it we, we, we are very we have an affinity for mission driven founders so if this is you know something that's part of your mission in life or your personal, that that really works for us. Um, I'm I'm very careful not to give advice and pretending it will work for every VC because VCs are so different. That's but right. for us, come direct. You know, go to our website refashion.com. I'll send you the link so you can share it in the show notes. But go to our yeah. website. There's a data intake form. That's that's the that's the best way to get to us. And and when we do talk. Tell us why this this matters to you personally. And okay, sounds like winning secrets for early stage. Well, Brian, yeah. great to see you. Thanks so much for coming on, and I hope to see you in the real world at one of these supply chain Congrats. federation yeah. uh, meetups. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. It was good to talk to you. You too. And you. Bye for now. Bye bye.